Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Mickey Brammer on her debut novel, The Collected Regrets of Clover. Mickey Brammer is a magazine writer originally from Tasmania, now based in New York City. She has spent the past eight years writing about design, architecture and art for publications including Architectural Digest, Dwell and Lonely Planet. And today we're going to be talking about her debut novel, which is The Collected Regrets of Clover. Mickey, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Tell us first of all then how you would describe the novel. I always say that it's an uplifting, joyful book about death. That's my my short pitch. Um, but the slightly longer one is it's about a 30-something death jeweler based in New York City who's dedicated her life to helping usher people peacefully through the dying process. But in doing so, she hasn't really lived a life of her own and she realizes that she regrets that. So through working with these clients in their final moments, she begins to consider what it means to live a beautiful life and whether that's something she can achieve for herself. So tell us where the inspiration for the story came from. Yeah, so ever since I was a kid, I'd always had uh, quite a lot of anxiety around death. And that came from, um, in part, from the fact that our family had quite a lot of death early on but also my uh, mother's mother died when my mum was 13 and that was a fact that I'd always known and in my flawed childhood logic I um, always thought that my mum would die when I was 13 and she didn't she's still alive and thriving Um, but by then you know it had really instilled this anxiety around death which I carried into adulthood And so I'm also someone who generally, when I'm afraid of something, I make myself do it until I'm not afraid of it. So, you know, if I'm afraid of heights, then I try to jump off the highest diving board and things like that. So I got to, I was living in New York in my thirties and I thought, well, maybe it's time instead of avoiding everything about death, maybe I could get a little bit curious about it. And so I started challenging myself to look at the things that I would normally avoid. So books about death, articles about it, or or podcasts even, and, you know, really just starting to listen and familiarize myself in it and helping me to understand perhaps where the fear came from. 
And in doing so, you know, in New York, you can go down a rabbit hole of anything. And I happened to go through, go down the rabbit hole of death and started attending talks given by hospice doctors or um, lectures on stoicism because the stoics were quite preoccupied with mortality and death. Or I went to these things called message circles and they were kind of like seances. And so through that, I, I learned so much and it did start to kind of normalize it for me. And I realized maybe I could take all these things I'd learned and put them into a book uh, that would be joyful and uplifting. So it would be palatable for someone like me who generally has anxiety around the topic. And that's how it came about. I want to ask why we're so reluctant to talk about death, but really that question should be, as you talk about in the book, or as Clover talks about, the, the, the narrator of the book, mainly why are like us, why are we like white people in the West reluctant mm-hmm. to talk about death? Yeah, you've got it like very specifically, it's us in the, the white people in the West. And, you know, I grew up in Australia and in the US, it's mostly the same. And I imagine so in, in the UK as well. I don't know. I think like it's always just been a taboo topic, which seems so ridiculous because it's the one thing that we all have in common and the one thing that's inevitable. And that is what makes it scarier and is what makes that's what kind of really drove my fear as well, the fact that no one really wanted to discuss it. And I think the unknown becomes even more scarier. And I think I can't answer why we don't talk about it, but I really hope it will change and that conversations can become more open, which is partly what I hope to achieve with the book. So a death doula, which is what Clover, the narrator, is, Mm -hmm. um, is a thing that exists in the real world. So tell us more about what they do. Yeah, so kind of like a birth doula helps usher someone into life, a death doula helps someone helps usher someone out of life and that can take many forms and it's actually something that's existed for for thousands of years, you know, people doctors, nurses, priests, nuns, hospice workers, family members, people have done the capacity of, you know, sitting with the dying for all of existence, but it's just more recently that the the profession of a death doula or also called an end-of-life doula has become an, a more common thing and, and has a name. And it can take many forms. So some people do come at it from a more medical perspective and they have, you know, the training of a nurse or doctor. But for others, it's more of an experiential aspect. So they help people work through their regrets and things like that and tie up loose ends, whether that's writing a letter to to someone they've they've wanted to say something to or or helping them achieve these things they've always wanted to do. And then others are it's more kind of clerical, you know, helping get all your paperwork in order, organizing the funeral and things like that in advance so that it's easier for those left behind. And that's what's so interesting about it is that being a death doula can really take many forms and it can be however you interpret it. And so Clover in this is really me imagining from what I've learned from speaking to death doulas, how I would approach it if I were a death doula. And widening that out a bit, she's also, before she became a death doula, um, studied at college thanatology, which again mm-hmm. is a is a, a real life subject. Tell us something about what that is. Yeah, so thanatology is the study of death, which I didn't know about until I was researching for this book. And it is a common thing. Usually it's, or often it's under the branch of sociology in um, in university studies. But for her part, she uh, studies the different cultures of death and how different cultures and countries approach death and the practices around that. And that's what she was 
originally doing, but I think it can be like sociology. You can go through many paths um, of thanatology, depending on what your interest level is. There's a sequence in the book while she's at college where she's visiting Guatemala and working in, uh, I guess, a sort of old people's home centre um, that is very different from one we might see again in the, in the West. And I understand from, from the acknowledgements that you, you visited, you might even have worked in one yourself. What's your experience of that? Yeah, I have. I've volunteered in Guatemala um, at a, at a, it was a, old folks home base a nursing home for the the elderly but basically people who had no family left and had no money for it was very a low income facility uh and that was really interesting to me that the people were were so beautiful but it was so interesting to it, i think it's what really registered for me how in many societies including western society our old the elderly are often pushed aside you know put in these homes and just kind of left you know, and we kind of disregard them and, and don't see much value in them. And you could see that in the people who were there, you know, they knew that they were they were used to being overlooked or dismissed and things like that. So when you did take the time to really engage with them and get to know them, they were really amazing people and had this amazing wisdom and wonderful stories. And I think that's true of the elderly everywhere. And I, I wish that it we gave more more value to them as they got older instead of being a society that really values the ideas of the youth, which can also be great. But I think there's a more of a balance that we need. And just one other thing of before we actually talk about Clover as a person, mm-hmm. as a character, she visits at the beginning of the book um, and indeed meets one of the other major characters, someone else we'll talk about, at something called a death cafe, mm-hmm. um, which again, and I, I'm sure in many years of doing this podcast, this is something I've talked about on the show before, the sort of beginnings of these. Um, but tell us something again about the um, the idea of the death cafe. Yeah, so that's something I stumbled across. It was a really humid, hot day here in New York City. And I went into the New York Public Library in Bryant Park to just for the air conditioning. And I was there and saw uh, this flyer for a death cafe. And this was during my phase of trying to be curious about death. And I was like, oh, what is that? I'm not sure I could do that. That sounds really kind of confronting. But I went and it's basically a gathering of people, of strangers, um, and there's a moderator and you all just kind of sit around and chat about all things mortality. And it's a concept that exists all across the world. It was begun by a Swiss sociologist, I think, and then popularized uh, by a a British man. And it's basically, initially the idea was people would gather over food and drink and, and just discuss whatever they wanted to about death and mortality and grief. And with the idea of making that conversation more normal and comfortable. And they really, I when I looked into it, I realized they exist in so many cities across the world and have existed for a long time. And now there are a lot of online ones as well uh, after the pandemic. But I um, I found it really beneficial as someone who who kind of had these anxieties and had never really talked about it to be in a room with all these people who were there for very different reasons but we're just so openly talking about it and you could really just bring up whatever you wanted to, whatever was on your mind. It was interesting to hear other people's perspectives and it was just so healthy. And I really hope that more people can take advantage of these just to to kind of make it a normal discussion. And so Clover, she's a death doula. She's an academic or she's been, um, she's mm-hmm. very successful at her job. People recommend her. She's has great empathy with the people that are dying 
a disaster in her private life, mm-hmm. um, a loner. She's in her 30s um, and she's never been in a relationship. Tell us something about who she is. Yeah, so she had encountered death very early on in her life. So her she watched her kindergarten teacher die from a, a heart attack while he was reading Peter Rabbit to the kids at story time. And then a year or so later, she loses her parents um, in an accident abroad and she's sent to live with her grandfather in New York City. And he's an introvert and, you know, he really does his best to to raise her in the best way that he can. But um, because he's an introvert, she picks up on those tendencies as well. But because she's had this relationship with death very early on, she develops a fascination with it. And because in our society, it is a, a taboo subject, she begins to be cast as a bit of a weirdo. Um, and not only is isolated socially at school, but she begins to believe that herself and and isolates herself. And after having a few, um, like when she, she's, you know, tried to have a relationship and that didn't go well. So she, um, I think it was like unrequited love and, and the hurt from that kind of made her realize that it's just safer to, to close your heart off and, and observe the world rather than taking part in it. And I think it, what's really interesting, you know, I think some people might wonder why she can be so warm and empathetic in her job and really understand what people need and then not be able to do any of those things in her social life. But I think that's true of many of us. I think in our professional lives, we often wear these masks. And if we're good at our jobs, we know what we need to do. We know what people need. And so there's a confidence that comes in that. And with her particularly, these people she knows are going to die. And so there's no no pressure with that relationship because she knows how it's going to end. Um, whereas in her personal life, it's she's putting herself forward to potentially be rejected. And that's so scary to her. And she just doesn't know how to, to act. And so she freezes up like many people do when the, the moment comes. Tell us something more about Clover's relationship with her grandfather, who has basically raised her on his own since she was six mm-hmm. years old. Yeah, so he is a biology professor at Columbia University and really sees the world in a very scientific way, you know, studying its patterns and things like that. And that's what he passes on to Clover, documenting things and recognizing the patterns in people as a way of understanding them, rather than necessarily tapping into intuition and things like that. So he's raised her with this very specific outlook on life, which really benefits her in some ways, but it also limits her. Uh, but because he's been her one person for her whole life, she really has this loyalty to him and really wants to stay true to the way he raised her and, and feels a little bit of guilt about the fact that she isn't always living up to what she sees as his standards. And then when she was traveling in her early 20s as part of her studies, uh, he died alone in his office and and she felt a lot of guilt about that, about not having been there for him and not having seen him for about a year. And so that's what compels her to come back to New York City and really dedicate herself to being a death doula and being with these people so that nobody dies alone if she can help it. And that's really what the driving force is. It's her learning to open up to the world, but also throughout the novel, it's her coming to terms with her grief and her guilt over losing her grandpa. I mentioned that she's, you know, she's never had a successful relationship. And I wanted to talk about this rather 
extreme obsession with rom-coms that she developed <laughs> yeah so it's a funny thing um I was always really interested in why people binge watch um and I have a lot of friends here for example who watch law and order over and over and it's kind of like a, a comfort for them and I always thought well why is that and when I looked into it, it's um, we like to rewatch things because there's a safety aspect to it because we know exactly what's going to happen. And so when you need soothing emotionally, it's familiarity with characters and situations and you're still watching something, but you don't have to kind of prepare yourself. And so it really is a way that we soothe ourselves. But she does it to an unhealthy degree because she lives vicariously through these characters in these rom-coms because she has made the choice to close herself off from that. So the only way she can satisfy those emotional whims is to to watch these rom-coms and also by spying on her neighbours and kind of making up narratives in her head about them. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Mickey Brammer and we're talking about her debut novel, The Collected Regrets of Clover. And Mickey, I want to talk about some of the other characters, um, just with the, the caveat that obviously we don't want to give too much away about the story, about what happens. People should mm-hmm. read that for themselves. But at the one of the deaf cafes, she repeatedly runs into a guy who seems quite annoying to her at the beginning called Sebastian. Tell us something about who he is. Yeah, so he is a, a guy around her age who 
has come to these death cafes because he has uh, anxieties around death. So he's probably close to me in that aspect. And, you know, he's come to the cafes to kind of help come to terms with it. And then he ends up learning that Clove is a death doula and reveals that he has a grandmother who's dying of pancreatic cancer and he wants to to get Clover to work with her. Um, and he is an interesting he's kind of Clover's first opportunity to to really potentially explore what it means to dip her toe in the dating life um, in New York City Um, and it isn't necessarily what she thinks but he's very persistent and I think for someone like Clover you need someone who's really persistent to kind of break through that that guard that she's put up and that is part of her adventure but not the only part so I think She's also navigating what it means to to have friendship as well with a new neighbor that moves in and really just how to engage socially with the world in general. And tell us something about Claudia, who is Sebastian's grandmother. Yeah, so she was, uh, she's 90, I forget how she's 90 something years old. And she uh, was a photojournalist back in the 1950s at a time when there were very few female photojournalists and she traveled the world and um, went to places like North Africa and Europe. But then she comes home to to get married. And basically her husband is, and she is also of uh, this kind of upper class, upper West side society where it's frowned upon for women in her position to work. So she gave up her career to be a, a wife and mother. And that is something that she regrets and something that she conveys to Clover and that inspires Clover to see if there's any way she can kind of bring Claudia some closure at the end of her life to help her resolve some of her regrets and that drives her on a little bit of an adventure. I was interested in the fact that you chose photojournalism as as her short-lived career. You obviously were a journalist yourself. Mm-hmm. And that whole world of, you know, the sort of Martha Gellhorns and... Mm-hmm that very short-lived period of time where there was, um, you know, these very adventurous women photojournalists. Tell us something a bit more about that world. Yeah, I love that world and I've always loved those women. Martha Gellhorn uh, specifically, who for uh, people who don't know her, she was a journalist, um, a war journalist, among other things. And she's also married to Ernest Hemingway uh, for a time, but was, I think, the, his only wife who divorced him. But she was very her time was so intrepid and adventurous and doing all these things and was very much in a man's world making her making her mark and you know being in these war zones and and documenting them at a a time where I can't even imagine what it would have been like in general much less as a woman Um, and I've just always loved her and I also love her writing style she's very um, she says a lot with a little and I think that is very hard to do and is very admirable. You mentioned that, um, that working with Claudia basically sends Clover off on a little adventure, various little adventures, maybe. Um, and, and the main one of these, which we can maybe say a little bit about, because I think it is mentioned in the, um, in the blurb of the book, um, is for a long lost love of Claudia's. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so while she was stationed in in Marseille in the south of France, when she was covering that tail end of the Tunisian independence movement, she she has this um, encounter with a Frenchman and and kind of on a whim decides to spend a week on a boat with him and then goes and when she's already engaged to her fiancé back in New York and then goes home to assume this life of, of wife and mother. 
and never they wrote letters for a time and then she never heard from him again um and that was when she was in her 20s so this is almost 70 years later and he's still someone she thinks of and and so clover looks into it to see if there's a chance she might be able to find him so they can at least speak or you know at least have some contact and that actually came from in my research I really looked into what people do regret or say on their deathbed and a lot of the time it is this long lost love and not necessarily someone who was a a long-term relationship often it's an encounter they had on a train while they were backpacking somewhere or you know someone they had a fleeting relationship with and it's always been so meaningful and they've thought about it for decades and that's the person they think of on their deathbed, which I thought was so interesting. Like the man in Citizen Kane, mm-hmm. the, um, the lawyer in Citizen Kane. Um, something we didn't talk about when we were talking about Clover, which you've just reminded me of talking about the uh, regrets. Of course, the um, the book is called The Collected Regrets of Clover, which of course both stands in for her own mm-hmm. unlived life, um, but also the fact that she has these notebooks of... Um, confessions advice and regrets that people have given her on the deathbed so tell us something about that idea yeah so when I was doing that research I noticed that I mean not everybody has a a poignant thing to say on their deathbed often it's nonsensical or you know something simple like it's cold in here but often it fits into the categories of regret or a piece of advice or a confession there are a lot of confessions on deathbeds and so I thought, well, since Clover came from this kind of background with her grandfather of documenting things in life, I thought it would be interesting. So she documents people's last words in these three notebooks, regrets, advice, and confessions, partially for kind of posterity, especially when those people have died alone. She feels like someone should have have a record of, of what they said, but also she then begins to use them for her own life and kind of as inspiration. So with the regrets, she tries to do something she tries to make sure she does that thing that the person regrets not doing so that she won't have that regret. And then the advice, she tries to apply that advice to her own own life. So for example, one person advises her to buy herself a, a bunch of flowers each day, even if it's just from the, the grocery store. And then with the confession, she tries to do something to kind of atone for that. So one client she had who admitted that he used to steal money from buskers Um, she goes around and gives them kind of big donations, like $10, $20 and kind of slips it into their cases too. She kind of, she doesn't even know if she believes in karma, but I just feels like it's a way that she balances things out. But then she becomes kind of a little bit obsessive with that as well and and uses it to avoid looking at her own regrets. And I just wanted to talk about a couple of other, um, I say minor characters, but these two Mm -hmm. people who are Clover's only friend, and then her uh, sort of new friend, which are her mm-hmm. neighbours, um, Sylvie and Leo. Tell us something about these two characters. Leo particularly is a, a really great character. I thought. Yeah, so Leo um, is what was uh, the upstairs neighbour. So she's lived in the same apartment, her grandpa's apartment that she moved into when she was six. So it's in the West Village in New York, and she's been there for her entire life since then, except when she was travelling. Um, and Leo has always lived upstairs and he was grandpa's very close friend Um, and he's now 87 years old and Clover's basically only friend and he's he really stepped in to look out for her after her grandpa died and they have this really sweet friendship where they play mahjong with each other every week and he is kind of a father figure to her and he's really trying to to push her out in the world and encourage her to 
to, you know, maybe make friends or try dating because he's really trying to prepare her for when he's no longer around. Um, And that's a really interesting, I have a lot of elderly friends. I've always enjoyed um, spending time with them. I do a lot of volunteering with them and and was raised by a lot of great aunts and uncles because I have a single mother. So they really helped step in. So I have a, a really real appreciation for those relationships. And, and I really like seeing them in books. So that was part of why that one's in there. And then Sylvie is the new neighbor who moves in, who's closer to uh, Clover's age and a lot different from her. She's an extrovert, very social, and really kind of pushes to be friends with Clover, which Clover resists until she considers, well, maybe this is my opportunity. And so it's really about all these characters, um, Claudia, Leo, Sylvia and Sebastian really trying to draw Clover out of her world and kind of push her out of her shell so she can really see what it means to to live a beautiful life. And just one more thing. There's there's no actual mention of this in the in the press release with the book that I got, but in the acknowledgement, you sort of allude to the fact that uh, there's a possibility of Clover appearing on screen at some point. What's going on with that? Yeah, that's it. That you know, there have been discussions, and that's the nothing official yet. But hopefully, uh, that's something we'll see sometime. Okay, so to finish off, can I get you to read us a bit? Yeah, sure. So just to give a, a bit of background, this is just when Clover. There are some flashback chapters that appear throughout the book, and this is one when Clover is six years old, and she's just been sent to live with her grandfather in New York City. Why do we die, Grandpa? I was six years old, sitting opposite Grandpa in a booth of the diner, a few blocks from our apartment. In the months since I'd come to live with him, his habitual weekend breakfast spot had become mine by default. He preferred the corned beef hash. I loved the French toast. Well, that's a big question for a little girl, Grandpa said, but it's a very good one. He dipped his teaspoon into his black coffee and stirred it as he thought. I'd watched him perform the same action so many times in the past few weeks that I wondered if the answers to all hard questions lay in the bottom of a coffee cup. Grandpa lifted the spoon and tapped it three times. It was always three times, on the left side of the cup. You see, Clover, with so many people being born every day, there's not enough room or resources for us all on this planet. That means people need to die to make space for other people to be born. I considered this as I arranged the blueberries on my plate into a smiley face. Couldn't we just move to another planet, like Jupiter or Neptune? They have rings, so they probably have a lot of extra space. But we'd have to go there in rocket ships. Grandpa stoked the stubble on his chin, a newly familiar sound that I found comforting. Perhaps one day we'll be able to move to other planets, but we haven't quite figured out how to do that yet. He moved a long leg out from beneath the table, flexing it with relief. The cramped booth somehow emphasized his impressive height while making my six-year-old frame feel even smaller. As a pair, we probably looked like a question mark seated across from a comma. Eventually, Grandpa continued, our bodies grow so old that they don't do what they're supposed to. He pointed to the graying hair on his head. My hair used to be the same color as yours, and my hands used to be smooth like yours are. But I'm getting older, so my body doesn't work the way it used to. I frowned, then raised my eyebrows in concern. Are you dying, Grandpa? He reached for his spoon and began stirring again. In essence, yes. Tap, tap, tap. In fact, we all are. He reached for a box of the diner's promotional matches next to the condiments. 
Singling out a green-headed stick, he struck the box's flank and a small flame sprung to life. I watched the stick devolve from a crisp, pale yellow to a disfigured black as the fire slid towards his fingers. With a brief flick of Grandpa's wrist, the flame reduced to smoke. You should never play with matches, Grandpa. I proudly echoed the advice I'd been recently taught to parrot by the teachers at my new elementary school. A smile flirted with the edges of Grandpa's mouth. You're right about that, Clover, but we'll make an exception this once so that we can explore your question. Is that okay? I swirled my straw around in my orange juice, deliberating. Okay, I promise you'll be very, very careful. I promise, he said solemnly. Now, let's think of each of these matches as a human life. Pushing my plate away, I propped my elbows on the table and rested my chin on my hands. In theory, Grandpa continued, each of these matches should burn for exactly the same amount of time, right? Right. But sometimes you strike a match and it goes out almost immediately. Other times it stops burning halfway. And sometimes it breaks when you try to light it. Exactly. Grandpa's approval felt like gold. So even though they're technically the same, each match is actually very unique. Sometimes it's not as strong structurally for reasons we just can't see by looking at it. And there are outside factors that contribute, like how hard we strike it against the box or the dampness in the air or how much breeze there is when we try to light it. All those things can affect how long a match burns for. Vinyl groaned as I shifted impatiently in my seat. But what's that got to do with dying? Grandpa struck another match with a flourish. As if proving his point, it fizzled out almost immediately. Well, my dear, just as we don't know how long a match will last until we light it, we never know how long a life will last until we live it. And there are often factors that we have no control over. So who decides when we die then? Mummy and Daddy weren't old like you. Why did they die? I watched Grandpa's chest rise then fall. The inner corners of his eyes glistened as if they held tiny diamonds. He gave a helpless shrug. Unfortunately, those are more big questions that we don't know the answer to. Well, I said, stabbing my French toast with my fork. Then we've got a lot of work to do, don't we? So I've been talking to Mickey Brammer. We've been talking about her debut novel, The Collected Regrets of Clover, which is out now in the UK from Penguin Viking. Mickey, thanks so much for taking the time to share it with me. Thank you, Neil, for having me. It's been great. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.